you know, Donny Osmond in a diaper on the stage. And you do get the sense that if that diaper were removed, it would be like a Ken doll. This is the Gospel of Musical Theatre, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theatre Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. It's the Gospel of Musical Theatre. We are back for season four, I suppose. This is our fourth, uh, our fourth composer to consider. We're going to be looking at the musicals of Andrew Lloyd Webber, beloved of some, hated by many, Peter, you've done a little bit of a, of a deep dive into the, the early biography of Andrew Lloyd Webber. What do you want to tell us about this guy? Yeah, so uh, let me just find this quote here. So I've been reading um, Unmasked, a memoir by Andrew Lloyd Webber, and he tells a story. He, lived, he grew up in a very unusual household. Grandmother, uh, mother, father, church organist, his younger brother, Julian, now world-famous cellist. But they had a pet monkey when his mom was pregnant with Andrew Lloyd Webber. And the, the monkey's name was Mimi, after Mimi and Laboem, obviously, and saw Andrew Lloyd Webber's mother's increasingly large uh, belly as she was pregnant with him. And uh, he writes, uh, she saw, uh, Mimi saw her, became horrendously distressed and violently attacked my mother's stomach with blood-curdling cries. In short, he writes, Mimi was the first person to take a dislike to Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> first of many. <laughs> not, first of many. Not everybody's of whom, cup of tea. And of whom, frankly, I mean, if you ask me in polite conversation, like at a cocktail party or that sort of stuff, as people do when they find out my interest in musical theater. You know, who are your favorites? I'll say Rogers and Hammerstein, Lerner and Lowe. Stephen uh, Sondheim. Candler and Ev, Stephen yeah. Sondheim. And then if somebody says, well, actually, I quite like Andrew Lloyd Webber. Mm -hmm. I look down at them with some disdain. I, I, like I, I feel badly yeah. saying that and think, oh, that stuff, that mm -hmm. schlock. That schlock. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... I'm not a, uh, I mean, I think we approached, both you and I approached the other composers we've looked at with some appreciation, sometimes bordering on a little bit of idolatry or hero <laughs> worship, especially with, you know, Richard Rodgers, Oscar Hammerstein. Yeah. Well, and, and um, Sondheim, I mean, we, we began that whole series by, you know, by God. <laughs> He's still so, God. Yeah. I know. I know. But. Not so much, Andrew Andrew Lloyd Webber. So yeah. what do we know about him? Born in 1948, 21 musicals, a song cycle, a Latin requiem mass. Mm -hmm. So what an amazing output. A, a few film scores yeah. in there as well. A Knight like Sir Elton John, six Tonys, three Grammys, an Academy Award, 14 Ivor Novello Awards, seven Olivier Awards, Kennedy Center Honors, so a much honored and respected uh, person, prolific, loved and hated, and for somebody like me, both. Yeah. Because uh, after I look down my nose at the person at the cocktail party who likes Andrew Lloyd Webber and say, you know, yuck, 
Uh, <laughs> oh Lord, I thank you that I am not like other people. <laughs> I listen to Stephen Sondheim and Richard Rogers. I do not traffic in the schlock of Angeloid Weber. And truly, I, I tell you, Peter, you will go down to your home justified rather than the other. <laughs> I heard a great sermon about that just the other day. Um, and a not so good one too, but that's, I, we digress. We digress. So as well as all that, uh, a producer and a multimillionaire from yeah. his work in the musical theater. And I think his work, particularly with Tim Rice, mm -hmm. his lyricist. Early lyricist. Is wonderful. Yeah. Early lyricist. Yeah. Uh, Joseph, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, and Evita, mm -hmm. uh, the big three with Tim Rice. And for me, whenever I think of Andrew Lloyd Webber, those three sort of come to the fore. Mm -hmm. Um and it's in some ways because of the cleverness of the lyric and also the beautiful marriage between music and lyrics that that he that he accomplishes. Mm. One other quote from the book, and then I want to know what you think. He says, Andrew Lloyd Webber, the most the most anyone could say about me was that I wrote tunes, had an oddball love of musicals and a bizarre love of architecture and medieval history. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I didn't I knew yeah. about the architecture love. I didn't know about medieval history. That's interesting. Yeah. Castles. Uh, okay. Um and and architecture, particularly Victorian architecture, mm -hmm. particularly high Victorian architecture. Yeah. I knew he had a thing um, for that. Yeah. 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 There is a, um, there is a Baroque quality to Andrew. Lewis. Well, that's, that's, that's the wrong, that's the wrong architectural story, but, but let's, let's say high Victorian. Um, there is, yes. there is, there is something wedding cakey about him. I, I'm, I'm thinking especially about sort of Phantom of the Opera to a certain degree Sunset Boulevard. I mean, both of these are high Gothic in every yes. sense of the, of the term. I suppose Evita in a certain way too has a kind of Gothic yeah. over larger than life, very ornate, dark in a certain kind of what, in a kind of creepy psychological, quasi-sexual way. There's there's yes. some interesting high Victorian Gothic architecture and psychology at work in this guy's yeah. stuff, kind of filtered through a pop rock sensibility. I mean, the, you know, obviously he and Tim Rice are, are children of the 50s and 60s, um, especially, and especially as, as we're looking at some of their early stuff, you know, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat today, Jesus Christ Superstar the pop influence, the rock influence there, I think is gonna, is gonna be something that we're, that we're gonna be talking about, but, but, but very much married to a kind of, I mean, almost a kind of Victorian penny dreadful-ish kind of sensibility. I mean, there's a, there's a reason that schlock is the word that occurs. Some of that is a dismissive term, but some of it is he's very popular and is writing, I think, in a deliberately popular vein that does kind of seem to echo blood guts and gore in that kind of victorian popular sense yeah very much so it's again from the from his memoir he fell in love with opera when he saw a production of tosca with mm -hmm. callus mm -hmm. and tito gobi at the at covent garden in london and he was obsessed with tosca yeah um with the with the music of Puccini, with the melodrama uh, and the sexuality of that mm -hmm. opera, and in a lot of ways, Tosca and another major influence on his life was Elvis. Okay, huge Elvis fan growing yeah. up, which comes forward in Joseph. Yeah, which we'll talk much. about in a minute. And I think 
he studied classical music. His father was a church organist. So there's a lot of Anglican, deep uh, Anglican roots, was the organist for a period of time at All Saints Margaret Street, a high Victorian Anglo-Catholic shrine, a smoky Anglo-Catholic parish just off Oxford Street in central London. Beautiful church, actually, in lots of ways. We worship there. Mm-hmm. So he grew up with this kind of, he loved Prokofiev, mm-hmm. uh, Puccini. He knew the Anglican repertoire because he had to sit in church with his parents and let it wash over him. Born in 1948. So when the uh, explosion happened, first with Elvis in the late 50s, mm-hmm. and then with the Beatles. Yeah. And he was a young man. Yep. And he was a composer then he sort of merged these worlds together. Yeah. So you do kind of get this pop rock mm-hmm. thing going on, mm-hmm. married with a kind of very classical yep. Operatic. Yep. Mm-hmm. Operatic, yeah. yeah. And that all comes to the fore in Phantom, really. Sure. Where he tries to mimic the high art or low art, depending on your view of it, of Italian opera, right? Um um, with its larger than life characters and bizarre themes. And, mm-hmm. But that's for another day. We can for another day. get into Phantom. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. looking forward to that. Phantom of the o- I was obsessed with Phantom of the Opera when I was, I, I think, what, 13, 14. It was really one of my, I mean, you know, as a, as a small kid, as a kid, I got into Lerner and Lowe and Rogers and Hammerstein and then kind of, you know, as a middle schooler decided that musicals were just too, too stupid. I, I was too cool for, for musicals, but kind of got back into them through Phantom of the Opera. That was, that was sort of the, and it, I mean, I think of it as being very much a function of puberty. My hormones were yes. raging. I, mm-hmm. and Phantom, something about Phantom of the Opera. I, I mean, I had a crush on a, on a girl incidentally, uh, who was really into Phantom of the Opera. She was kind of the, and so like, it was sort of a way that we connected and looking back now, I think, God, what a, what a, what a very queer, young, pubescent sexuality, musical gay guy and his fag hag connecting through Phantom of the Opera. I mean, there's something so interesting <laughs> to me about that, the role that it played in my, in my young adolescence, but it was, I mean, that was actually the first, the first musical that I ever, the first Broadway musical that I ever saw in New York was Phantom of the Opera. Oh, we, wow. I was in eighth grade when my family took a kind of trip around the, around the United States. And we, and that was, I, that was kind of the one thing I was like, I really want to see Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. My parents were very indulgent. We got tickets. And I, I remember sitting in the majestic theater and watching, you know, watching the curtain go up on that thing and just being <clears throat> spellbound. I mean, it yeah. caught me. Yeah. So I, you know, I did, I have not always loved fan of the opera all that much. I went through a period of my life where I really couldn't stand it. I'm now I'm, I'm feeling a little more affectionate towards it again, as it prepares to leave Broadway amazingly after I think 30 years or something like that. So yeah. that might be something that we, I, I'm, and I'm, I'm interested in kind of thinking with you too, because I, I share your, your sense of, you know, at the cocktail party, when people find out you're into musicals and they gush about Andrew Lloyd Webber, usually my response is, oh yeah, that's not really, that's not really what I'm talking about <laughs> when I talk about sure. why I love musicals. I, I do tend to find his stuff kind of schlocky, kind of not all that interesting, not all that sophisticated. And, and yet it has such popular appeal at one level. And there's a piece of me that wants to, I feel like he's kind of ripe for reassessment in a certain kind of way, you know, yes. like maybe, maybe this guy is doing something far more interesting than we musical theater snobs, not to put too fine a point on it, we gay musical theater snobs. Um, yes, yes. He's one of the only it's a kind of significant, well, not one of the only, I suppose Roger Hammerstein, but like, I mean, there's not a lot of straight guys in the world of musical theater. Right. 
And yeah. Anthony Ward Weber is very much, uh, you know, like, I mean, as you say, uh, grew up around a lot of gay guys, but, you know, he's he's not writing, he's writing from very much, I think, a camp sensibility, but not yes. what I would call a, I don't know, actually, I would be interested to see, like, how queer is Andrew Lloyd Webber? My sense is not all that queer. Um, he's pretty, he's pretty straight in a lot of ways. Although, and then, and then actually, and as soon as I say that, I think, well, boy, there's a, there's a lot of really interesting, odd, um, so he might be queer that I, that I give him credit for, but I'm interested in kind of pulling out with you, you know, for those of us who have looked down on Andrew Lloyd Webber for, for a while, is there something more interesting here that we might, we might find to talk about? Or is he, you know, is he a sort of second rate, you know, is, is he not going to stand the test of time? Will he end up kind of landing in the dustbin along with, you know, some of the other, you know, have a small, a small group of devoted fans who are into him for the camp quality, but may not last in the way that Rogers and Hammerstein and Lerner and Lowe and some of the others um, have endured. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be interesting to know. And, and certainly uh, the queer connection leads to the genesis of Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Because, Tim Rice, these were young guys at the time. They were like 17, 18. Mm -hmm. Um, Andrew Lloyd Webber describes in his autobiography, Tim Rice, he doesn't use this term, but as drop dead gorgeous, Mm -hmm. tall, beautiful, very, um, very attractive. And it was a teacher, a family friend, uh, Alan Doggett, who openly gay as a teacher in British public school, though not interested in young not, not interested in young boys, interested in adult male uh, relationships. But Andrew Lloyd Webber says, often sat, wanted to sit very close to me on the sofa. Mm-hmm. It was when he was looking to do another uh, pop cantata. That's the term that was used. Uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber said he'd like to, and he had a new writing partner he'd met and showed a picture of Tim Rice and Mr. Doggett, was immediately interested in engagement. So, uh, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, we'd love, little... to, love to engage your, your services. Maybe some late nights at the piano as we put this thing together. <laughs> yeah. So, my dear boy, my dear boy. Cantata for for a school, for Colet Court School, 15 minutes is how Joseph began. Wow. A 15 minute. Uh, Probably should have stayed at 15 minutes. It might have been <laughs> a stronger piece of theater if it hadn't been yeah. expanded to 90. Oh my. Then 20 minutes at Westminster Central Hall after Andrew Lloyd Webber's dad finished at All Saints Margaret Street. He went to Westminster Central Hall, the big Methodist right. hall. And they did 20 minutes there. By 1968, it was at St. Paul's Cathedral, 35 minutes. So it's a very interesting, and then it goes on mm-hmm. the show. We won't go, won't bore you. With can you of, just, uh, can you imagine? I'm just, I'm, I've, I've recently been in St. Paul's and was reminded once again of what a muddy acoustic it is. Yes. How did yeah. they do, pull off Joseph and the Amazing Technical Dream quote in the big barrel of St. Paul's Cathedral? Like, what could that possibly right. have sounded like? I would love to know. That's a, that's a side note. Well, probably. Lots and lots of what we would see now as antiquated sound equipment. It must have. It, they must have amplified, right? There's no way they could have been yeah. acoustic. Yeah, no not way they could space. have done it. No. But you've got some elements here that are very familiar to Anglicans, a, a children's choir, boys yep. and girls singing together. It was originally a school, then was into church. And quite apart from its storied many decades 
revivals on Broadway and on the West End. It's in schools. It's in churches here in Vancouver about seven, maybe 10 years ago, a diocesan youth ministry collective that wanted to do musicals. Their first one out was Joseph, Mm -hmm. and it worked really well. They tried the next year to do The Sound of Music, but it fell apart in the second act and they canceled the show. Mm -hmm. They did a very odd production of Oliver. That's a whole other conversation. So the elements, a children's choir, a narrator. Think of like Stainer's crucifixion mm-hmm. as a kind of narrator yeah. through it. Or even the, I think about the, the Bach, the Bach passions, right? The, the yeah. kind of the, the evangelist role, right? But yeah. That, that, that's a, yeah. that's a piece yeah. of, of liturgical theater. I think yeah. that, yeah, they're borrowing from. And then, you know, a small number of adults actually originally mm-hmm. expanded, you know, so you get the, the brothers by the time you're on Broadway and so forth. Um, who can all pop up and sing their name in one of the opening songs and, and catchy tunes, mm-hmm. um, pop tunes, but with sort of a hymnic quality. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't have to like any dream will do. Yeah. That's uh, interesting, isn't it? Because there is a, it is a, I mean, I think of it as being a sort of a schlocky earworm, but another way to describe that phenomenon is it's, it is kind of a hymn. I mean, there's actually in some ways it's, a, it's almost a little bit more of a praise chorus is how I would describe yes. Any Dream Will Do. Yeah. All you have to do is hear hear one 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 time through that sort of verse chorus sequence, and everybody knows it. Ah, yeah. I mean, like it's yeah. there, there's a there's a sing song equality to it, but it, it does sort of feel like shine Jesus shine in a certain kind of way, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's pop church music. Pop church really. music. Yep. Yeah. Not too hard rock that came later for uh, Andrew and Tim, uh, I guess, in Jesus Christ Superstar. Mm-hmm. This is still. More kind of Patula Clarky. Yeah. Um, well, and it's very, it's very pastiche, isn't it? Right. I mean, like they're doing kind of very deliberate, you know, like there's a there's a um French almost sort of Edith Piaf send up. There's a very, yeah. I think, ill-advised and slightly racist Calypso Caribbean totally send up. Racist. There's a total Elvis, yeah. you know. I mean, it's they're almost doing sort of impersonations of various some rock, some, some pop, some just kind of different sort of 20th century songwriting styles. There's the, I mean, there's the kind of the go-go number, go, 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 Joseph. There, you know, like the, it's, it's just sort of hitting a bunch of spoofs, if you like, yeah. uh, of various songwriting styles. Yeah. There's one less place at our table. There's one more tear in my eye. 
But Joseph, the things that you stood for I'm thinking about the, what do you call them at, at Trinity Cathedral in Portland when you have your cabaret music nights or whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of skits and send ups. Right. Right. It's yeah. That sort of. Yeah. There is a skit like quality thing. to it, which which kind of ties to the, you know, sort of the school, the school play, the youth group. Christmas Pat. I mean, like there right. is, it, in some ways it's written for children. It's written to be done by a youthful, I would say an amateur crowd. It's, I mean, you know, like obviously professional yep. theaters have mounted this thing. It's been on Broadway, but it, I think it works best in the church fellowship hall or in the church basement or kind of in so. that amateur hour. I mean, like that's really what it was written to do. And I think in some ways it works best in that context. And that's what Andrew Lloyd Webber had been doing at school and then at Oxford was working with school plays. Yeah. I mean, it's got the kind of school play quality. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, some of my uh, most moving theatrical moments have been at school plays. Yeah. Like sometimes when you give a group of adolescents with a decent director, a text and a play, I remember seeing a production of the Laramie Project about Matthew Shepard mm -hmm. at a high school in uh, Vancouver. And my God, I was even more moved seeing these kids inhabit these roles and say these lines than I was in the film version or that sort of thing. But so there's a power to it. But, and I know you want to talk about this and I do too. It's a story from Hebrew scripture written to be told by non-Jews, by Gentiles. Right. right. And I think that theologically is kind of problematic piece here. Mm -hmm. Um Christians love telling the sweet stories from Hebrew scripture. Uh, we get a little, you know, when it's uh, Tamar or uh, King David's infidelity with Bathsheba, yeah. suddenly we want to talk about Jesus with the little children or something like that. Mm -hmm. But Joseph is a favorite story of Christians. Yes. And he got it, the text they got from a child's Bible. Oh, really? Um, I didn't know that. One of those. Well, that's where they 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 drew their story uh -huh. from a kind of illustrated children's Bible. Sure. That's sure. what he and Tim Rice were working with. So they didn't actually look at the text of the Old Testament to uh, that. OK, that's interesting to me. OK. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's 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 flag that as because I mean, that that kind of ties to the, the point here about who's. Whose version of the Joseph story is this, and how is it functioning theologically? I think that's that's my that's my question about this about this material, because in some ways yeah. it does feel, and it, it so it doesn't surprise me that they're lifting it from a children's Bible. At one level, that makes sense. It's a story. I mean, it's designed to be done in a school, so you do the you know. But it's it's yeah. the it's the Gentile re or the the young Christian boys and girls retelling of the Joseph story, kind of brought to life. Which yes. I think, I mean, yeah. you know, neither neither you or I are are Jewish, uh, although we've talked to some some great Jewish interlocutors in our time, and I'm, and I'm thinking about our conversation um, with Rabbi Kahana and Counter Ida Ray Kahana about you know the difference between the Christian sense of an ending, right? The Christians invariably need this sort of redemptive arc 
in, yes. and and some ways and we, and we could we could you know with that that might be the function of kind of western storytelling in many ways sort of the you know the, the christian need for a sort of resurrection moment at the end of every story versus a very jewish sense of an ending which can end in a sort of unresolved often very sort of dark way but but the idea here is the story kind of keeps on going and there is I suppose a little bit of a sense of that in Joseph. I mean, there's a there's an echo to you know this is a, this is a story that is going to keep being retold, and in some ways yeah. that's a that's a little that's a little bit of a nod to a more sort of Jewish sensibility at the heart of this thing. But I would I would love to I would love to talk with some Jewish lovers of this story about how the Joseph story functions in Judaism because my sense is you're right it is a beloved story of Christians, and I think part of that is. It does, if, if, we, if we do the children's Bible story version of it and not the Old Testament story version of it, it does seem to have a clear redemptive arc, right? It's a hero narrative. Right. A young man full of promise is, is beset by, by all kinds of challenges and comes out on top, you know? And then, I mean, and this is such a, such a Christian narrative, turns around and forgives those who have done him wrong. I mean, like in some ways, in that sense, the Joseph story for Christians, I think, is often read as a, almost a sort of a precursor of the Jesus story. Um, he becomes yes. almost a sort of a stand-in for Jesus. I, I'm thinking here about, you know, Rene Girard, uh, the kind of the forgiving victim idea that one of the ways of understanding yes. Jesus's redemptive work is that Jesus is the victim who turns around and forgives his assailants. And that's exactly what we see in Joseph, right? So Christians tend to yes. pull out the line from the kind of the weird code at the end of the Joseph story where Joseph's brothers once again come back to him and like, you know, are, are we really okay with you? And Joseph says to them, you know, what you intended for evil, God used for good. That's become such a Christian yeah. uh, slogan in some ways. That tends to be how we preach the Joseph story, this sort of echo in, in Hebrew scripture of what will become kind of the Jesus narrative. My sense is for Jewish readers, that is not necessarily right. the point of this story. It's not a resurrection story. It's not a redemption story. I think it, it functions no. in a much more complicated way. Yeah. And reading, doing some reading uh, in Jewish scholars about Joseph, one of the ways that Jews understand the Joseph story is this is what sets up the need for the Exodus yeah. out of Egypt. Right. So far from being as to your point, the kind of nice arc that resolves itself in resurrection and everybody lives happily ever after. In fact, within Jewish literature, when you think, well, why were the children of, the, of Israel enslaved in Egypt? It's because of Joseph. Right. It's because Joseph got them mm. out of their homeland. And that's why we ended up enslaved in Egypt and why we had to get out and search for the promised land. Right. So it in fact is the precursor, not of a happy ending, but of the story of, uh, of, of Passover. Of Exodus and return. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of Exodus and return. Yeah. yeah. Sort of the, the and, and that, that's a much more cyclical story, right? The sort of cyclical nature yeah. of how God interacts with God's, with God's people, which is, you know, that there is this sort of cycle of exile and return, uh, leaving your homeland, coming back to it, the search, the search for a homeland, the longing for a homeland, the sort of cyclical nature of that of that story, which in some ways I think that that is a more maybe a more authentic way or certainly a, a more Jewish way of understanding how the Joseph story functions. It's not a precursor of the resurrection. It's a precursor of the exodus. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But Rice and uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber set it up with any dream will do and kind of like 
it's not quite Norman Vincent Peale. It's pretty it's dang sort close. Of, it's sort of, you know, yeah. dream your best, um, close your eyes. I mean, it's sort of doing a let's move into an imaginative world. And it's quite sure. clever in, in that way. Uh-huh. But kind of encouraging I me, mean, what I hear from any dream can do is the sort of, you know, stuff on Hallmark cards dream your biggest dreams, little yeah. boys, little girls. Don't let the world hold you back. Yep. Everything is possible for you. And I think that's a fundamental misreading of the of the Joseph story. I agree. I agree. I think the narrator's line, I think it's right before any dream will do it. Her kind of preview is, if you think it, want it, dream it, then it's real. You are what you feel. So that's that's the theological framing of this story, which, as you say, I think is a kind of like, you know, if you dream it, you can do it. So that's what's being set up for. Right. It is a kind of a I mean, what what do we want to call this? A sort of empowering Sunday school message. Right. And, you know, at, at one level, I guess I'd rather have children be told if you dream it, you can do it rather than if you misbehave. Santa's going to punish you. I mean, so I I guess it is it is an empowering message rather than a shaming message. Okay, but then Joseph comes on stage and starts singing what I think are some of the most incoherent lyrics of any song in the Broadway canon. I don't even know what this is trying to do. I closed my eyes, drew back the curtain to see what does this mean to see for certain what I thought I knew. I'm not sure what that means. I closed my eyes, drew back the curtain to see for certain what I thought I knew. So he's pulling back the curtain. He has a sense of something, maybe from a dream, but he's pulling back the curtain to see it, if it's really there. And what he sees is this, far, far away, someone was weeping, but the world was sleeping. Nah, any dream will do. I closed my eyes, drew back the curtain, one level i think i think that's almost um 
that's almost nonsense. I mean, it's almost yeah. just like syllables that happen to fit this sing-songy melody. If it means anything at all, I think what it means is it doesn't matter what you dream. It only matters that you dream. If I'm going to lift a line from Amy Sedaris's Brilliant Strangers with Candy. And I don't know how that maps on to any version of the Joseph story that I, that, I mean, is that, is that the, is that the point of this thing that you just yeah. have to, like, you must dream something and it doesn't matter what it is, as long as you have yeah. the power to, to dream, that's enough. Well, and it's the confusion of fantasy, the fantasies we have, our active imagination and the real bodily act of dreaming. Mm -hmm. Because actually, I have, maybe you do, I have no control over what I <laughs> dream. I right. wish I did sometimes. It conjures up, it brings forward this incoherent world of relationships and memories and fantasies and fears and desires and hopes mm -hmm. completely out of my control. Right. Whereas the notion of, you know, I close my eyes and I, whatever, uh, I'm going to hope for the best. Maybe things will turn out all right at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I think the story of Joseph and his brothers is actually very, a very dark story, a very troubling story about, about sibling rivalry, about the power of the unconscious about unintended consequences, about recognition and forgiveness and the beginning of a new life, all brought about by out-of-control human circumstances. Right. You know, quite the opposite of Robert Schuller and Norman Vincent Peale. If you dream it, you, you can you do can, it. You can, you can, you can do it. Yeah. It's more about be uh, not even be careful about what you dream, but watch out for your for your nighttime, your nocturnal dreams, right? Yeah. Those uncontrolled, incohate moments. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 so much there, right? Because the Joseph story is, I mean, I think what what Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice are picking up on is dreams are central to the Joseph story, right? That's that's why Joseph's brothers turn on him because he has these he has these dreams. He blithely, excitedly tells them about them. Uh, and interprets them for for them, right? Like it means that you're all going to serve me someday. Well, I mean, of course they, of course they're furious with him. Sure. But then this is this is Joseph's one, you know, it's his one hero gift. It's the one thing he knows how to do. He knows how to interpret dreams, and and he, yes. you know, and and there's 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 some I don't know there's there's some interesting theology at work here, right? And and one one Robert Alter, the the great translator of, of Hebrew text, says, you know, in some ways the Joseph story is a little. Um, almost pagan a little bit in especially when when Joseph arrives at the court of Pharaoh you know and Pharaoh has has these dreams that are that are prophesying and and what Joseph says is God is telling you what God is going to do right so at that level dreams function as a we might say a message from God to those in power right like a warning right I'm gonna I'm gonna give you seven years of um, seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine get ready now you know so it becomes sort of the way you know that god works out god's providence through joseph because it allows them to plan for this you know seven years of famine thing that that and so one of the theological principles here is god tells powerful people what's going to happen in order to allow them time to respond and plan that's one way we could read the sort of the political story that the joseph story is telling but the, but the but as you say dreams are not um in the in the in the hebrew in the hebrew story dreams are not a kind of stand in for aspirational self self empowerment 
They are, right. as you say, they're dark. They are the cause of great violence. They're the cause of family dysfunction. They're, I mean, they're a little bit closer to a Freudian understanding of dreams than a Norman Vincent Peale understanding of dreams. There's an id at work. They often have to do with power. Um, in, you know, in the, in the case of the, of the two, you know, the, the baker and the cupbearer, dreams are what, you know, allow one man to understand that he's going to be killed. Um, so, I mean, like dreams, they're pretty dark in the Joseph. They have a lot yeah. of power. Sometimes they come from God, but the text is a little cagey about, you know, jo Joseph says, you know, God gives me the ability to interpret dreams. Not always that God, you know, is the, the cause of this. So th there's, there's a lot of interesting, slippy, I would say, complicated theology around the magicness of dreams, the power of dreams, but they're not, it's not a story about like, <laughs> yeah, there, there's not an encouragement in this story that dreaming is good. Right, right. And it's worth mentioning the kind of Christian scriptural midrash on the Joseph story is of course in Matthew, where right. Joseph, the betrothed husband mm -hmm. of Mary, has dreams yep. that unfold Certainly not. You're going to raise your son. And if you do, you know, if you're the best carpenter that you can be, right. Jesus is going to be the best. Car no, it's about the powers that be. The authorities are out to get you. Yeah. Get the hell out of Bethlehem, right? Yep. Go as far as you can go. You're in danger. I mean, that's the, that's how the Christians, mm -hmm. that's how at least the author of Matthew took up this idea, kind of a midrashy kind of way of Joseph the dreamer from Genesis and put him in the midst of the, of the Jesus story. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So any dream can do. Yeah, no. And so it's like, that's, that's exactly that. That's precisely what the Bible is not saying, right? Like the Bible exactly. is actually saying, actually it is, it is not true that any dream will do. There are certain dreams that are from God and those dreams are often, as you say, they're often warnings about something yeah. horrible that's going to happen. So yeah, so maybe there are a way that God takes care of God's beloved ones, sure. But they're not, but the, the dreams that matter in scripture are not human dreams. They're God's dreams that maybe are shared with human, but it is by no means any dream will do. In fact, there is one kind of dream that will do, and it's God's dream. And every other kind of dream yes. is something different. It's something, you know, it's it's human psychology at work. It's, you know, a function of violence. It's a function of eroticism. It's a function of all kinds of psychological. But by no means is this a text that's saying any dream will do. Actually, I think the Bible is saying be very careful and very deliberate and very discerning with your dreams. Be careful with your right. dreams. Every, every dream will not do. Some dreams are demonic and they will not do. Yeah. 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 So for me, Joseph is... My hunch is that Joseph was a really annoying person <laughs> um, and not the cute sex symbol that Donny Osmond uh, personified. Well, there are some who would probably say that run. Donny Osmond is a pretty annoying, a pretty annoying character, too. I mean, there's a we haven't we haven't we haven't, we haven't in, gone. We haven't opened up that particular can of worms yet. Maybe we'll leave it but shut. in Joseph, in Joseph, and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And by the way. In my little uh, my little uh, deep dive into Jewish literature, it was not a, a coat of many colors. Yes, that's important um, to, to point out. No, 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 no. Probably the important word here is coat, that mm -hmm. laborers would have worn short vests, shirts, the the lord of the of the land would wear a waistcoat to show, I don't work in the fields, right? 
And so uh, Jacob giving Joseph a coat was a way to put his mantle on him, the mantle of lordship, of of uh, that's yes, power that's the, and honor. And yes, he, he will not be sullying his hands with day laborers work. Yeah. Uh, right. fa favorite, favorite son status that is, is conferred by the owner of that. So there, there's a, there's an economic value to the coat and there's a, uh, what a family systems thing happening yes. with the coat. And that, and that gets picked up, right? The brothers are jealous of the coat. We get that in the, in the, in the, in the musical as well. Um, but yeah, it's not, it's not a Technicolor dream coat. That is uh, <laughs> definitely not. That's not what's happening and, in Hebrew scripture. And even that title is so 1960s, eh? Yeah. Technicolor. 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 Dream it's yeah. such an interesting word. It got mm -hmm. into the vocabulary and uh, this is brought to you in Technicolor. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting, isn't it? Because it, it's also a dream coat, right? Which is also an invention by Andrew Lloyd Webber. But what an interesting... Uh, way to think about what they're doing with the source material, right? Like both the, but in terms of what they're doing with with the function of dreams and also with this coat, that the coat becomes kind of the symbol of, um, at least in the musical, who Joseph is and what he, how he functions, right? He is the dreamer. He's the one, he's got the, I mean, and you see it in the Donny Osmond production, it's a rainbow coat, right? Like it's, you know, so it, and the whole song that names, you know, how 70 different colors that are in this thing, right? Like, I mean, a lot of time is spent in the musical describing its, I mean, magical qualities, its technicolor qualities. Some of this is technology, right? I think about sort of the late 60s, early 70s, right? Like he is he is the child of the internet. He's the child of social media. He is the forward thinker. He's in technicolor. The rest of the brothers are in black and white. This is almost the Wizard of Oz, right? Joseph is Dorothy. Joseph is Oz. Joseph is, I mean, I might say in terms of the musical, Joseph is the queer character, Right. Like he's nice. the one who's, you know, kind of pushing this expansive dreamlike, you know, self-empowerment. The world is changing. It's beautiful. I close my eyes, looked out the window. I'm, I'm not even making any sense with my lyrics, but I'm so in love with life and bodies and colors and people and dreams. And, you know, it's like it's just mishmash of all kinds of things. But all of that gets signaled in the name of the thing he's wearing. It's a dream coat. I look handsome, I look smart I am a walking work of art Such a dazzling coat of many colors How I love my coat of many colors It was red and yellow and green and brown and scarlet and black and ochre and peach and ruby and olive and violet and And at one level, I mean, theatrically, I think, you know, I don't love the song. I think it's kind of dumb, but it's kind of a, it's kind of a beautiful image. I mean, when he's swirling around in that thing, and I, I, I think there's some productions where it's like a, you know, they basically like the coat kind of becomes the entire stage, like a kind of like almost a balloon that gets lifted up. I mean, theatrically, it is an image that works in a certain kind of way. Yeah. And it's a catchy. Well, and, it, and it makes Joseph the hero, which of course mm -hmm. he is, but. It seems to me the relationships with his brother, even with his father, make him a problematic character. Yeah. Like, I'd rather 
Joseph be played by the ugly boy in the cast, not the pretty boy. Um, <laughs> no, because he has he... to do so much of the second act. He has to do it without a shirt, Peter. <laughs> I know. I know. He has to. I he know. has to. He has to glisten. And boy, does Donnie. I, I. I don't find Donnie Osmond particularly attractive, but he does glisten, and he is tanned. Yeah, and his big song, Joseph's big song, "Close Every Door to Me." Yeah, takes on a whole other resonance when Donny Osmond sings it, not just because, and, and, and Google the, Google the video. Um, and it just, it's, it's homoerotic in, yeah. in the extreme, extreme. In my view, <laughs> or maybe that says more about me, but um, <laughs> it takes on another edge when a Mormon boy is singing it. We have been promised a, a land, land of, of our own. own. Yep. And you think of that, all the Mormon imagery around yep. Brigham Young and the trek across the U.S. Yep. to get to uh, Salt Lake City, that narrative of persecution and mm-hmm. hardship is, I think, more foundational to the LDS Church than Joseph Smith and the and the tablets. Yeah, well, it's and this, which I think helps explain why this musical is so beloved of Mormons. I mean, you know, the Joseph yeah. story in general, I would say, but um, and some of that, you know, that it has to do, I think, with the with the twelve tribes of Judah and the way that you know, that, that, that plays out in Mormon. The- I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ways in which the LDS church has really adopted this, this story from the Bible and this musical in particular, this musicalization of it as very much a sort of, I think, foundational myth in terms of, uh, you know, identity. And um, so, yeah, when Donny Osmond, and some of that is, is the Osmond brothers, right? Like, I mean, there's a reason why these guys, you know, why, why Donny Osmond became so associated with this thing. And, you know, I think has performed that role something like 6,000 times. Um, it is it Until is, he got stage fright, he had to take a whole period of time off he completely froze one night mm. on stage interesting having played it you know over a thousand times and then all of a sudden he just is froze anyway yeah, yeah. no but i mean i think you're right i mean he is the quintessential joseph right like i mean other actors have played it patrick cassidy played it i mean it's interesting to me that like you know sort of set pretty boy sex symbols and i'm using sex symbols in heavy air quotes here because i i have a lot of questions about like what what is the nature of the sexiness of a patrick cassidy or a donny osmond um, cause it is a kind of clean cut, safe to bring home to your parents, Mormon boy sexiness. And that's different than a dangerous, you know, like what, yes. that, and, that, and as you say, right, Joseph, Joseph is kind of a, he's kind of an asshole. Um, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's yeah. kind of, he's not, um, he's not fun. He's not sexy. He's, He's mean. He's kind of, I mean, no, he's, he's almost like Siegfried in the, in the ring cycle, right? Like he's, he's an innocent in a certain kind of way. No sense of lurking sexuality or of, he's just kind of everything he thinks he says, there's no filter on this guy. And never in a cruel way, always in a kind of stupid, innocent way. Um, Right. And and that feels tied to me to the, to the, to Donny Osmond and to the, the, whatever that kind of phenomenon is of the, um, the innocent, sweet, Beautiful to look at, but not really sexualized Mormon boy. Close every door to me. Hide all the world from me. Bar all the windows and shut out the light. Do what you want with me. Hate me and laugh at me. Darken my daytime and torture my night 
If my life were important, I would ask, will I live or die? But I know the answers lie far from this world. Close every door to me. Keep those I love from me. Children of Israel are never alone. For I know I shall find my own peace of mind. For I have been promised a land of my own. And isn't interesting then that that scene is in a prison. Mm-hmm. It's almost like that character is walled in, yeah. is unable to escape from, and and it's part of you know, oh poor Donnie's in prison, right? I mean, yeah. but at a deeper level, this archetype of the pretty boy, sexually alluring but not erotic. Yeah, he's charged. so. I mean, he looks like he smells like soap. I mean, he just—he <laughs> looks like a skincare commercial. There's and and yeah. it's, I mean, like it's yeah, it's it's not. I mean, I, I like. I mean, how, what, what? So much of this is subjective. Who knows? For me, that's not sexy, right? There's right. something so. Um, I don't know. There's something so scrubbed about it. Yeah. I mean, he's Hair beautiful. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and the long hair that never. I mean, there's never a strand out of place. He's so perfect. I get made and maybe this is a long way of saying Joseph is so like there's nothing there's no vulnerability to this guy there's it's he's a hard character to get any sense of and part of that's the way that Donny Osmond plays him which is charming and charismatic but surfacey and clean part of it's from the from the original source material Joseph is a you know in in the in the Old Testament Joseph's a, a strange character in some ways um, yeah but I think it's more that this is what uh, Lloyd Webber and Rice have done with this story mm-hmm. they've they've scrubbed they they've they've sanitized it mm-hmm. it's kind of like they've dipped it in yeah you know he's a kendall yeah washed away any of the that's right really hard stuff about this story uh-huh. and left the 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 arc the bones of it and it's a great arc yeah you know it's a phenomenal arc they've they've chosen a good story but they've washed away the complexity, mm-hmm. the grittiness of it, the emotional ambiguity that's yeah. all over this text, in my view, and left, you know, Donny Osmond in a diaper on the stage. And you do get the sense that if that diaper were removed, it would be like a Ken doll, right? He would just have this little kind of molded plastic <laughs> um, cod piece. There wouldn't actually be anything there. I mean, you know, the, the seduction scene is so interesting to me, right? In, in the in the film version, it's Joan Collins of all people, right? Who's playing Potiphar's wife. I know. Um, you know, and and he's obviously, he's terrified. I mean, you get the sense that he's terrified. And and I mean, that that's a uh, that's a rape scene in the in the in the Hebrew scripture as much as anything, you know. So they're you know they're they're being faithful, I suppose, at that level. But there, yeah, there's something so. I mean, if there's any if there's any sexuality in this story, it's Potiphar's wife, right? Like she is the yeah. she is the figure of. So I mean, at one level, what, another way that I could read the way that sexuality functions in this story is a kind of 
fear of female sexuality. I think that's really, in some ways, like knit deep into the Joseph story. It's a, it's a story all about men, except for there's this one woman. And I think in Hebrew scripture, she, you know, like her, her big line is she says it twice is lie with me. Right. And actually in Hebrew, that's just two yeah. words. It's not lie with, it's basically fuck me. Um, it's, you know, she, right. she is, she is a, a character of pure kind of jezebel threatening female sexuality. That's, I mean, that's the lurking kind of dark sexual stuff in this, in this story, I think, um, that, that Lloyd yeah. Webber and, and Rice are kind of picking up on and, and doing with the sense, you know, obviously this is for children. So we're, we're sanitizing, you know, in all kinds of ways, I right. suppose it's appropriate, but yeah, I, the, the way that Potiphar's wife functions in, I, I mean, if there's anything interesting to me in this story, it's Potiphar's wife. I think that's the yeah. interesting um, and and what and the and the threat that she represents for Joseph, right? The way that he is. I yeah. mean, in in the Lloyd Webber version, I think he says, "I don't believe in free love," which is a great line to come out of a Mormon boy's mouth. Um, but you know, <laughs> the, but there is, you know, he is. My sense is like he is terrified of her in a very real way. I think there is also, you know, like he's also, I don't know, like there's something, there is something interesting. Fascinated. To yes. Joseph's looks and a handsome figure had attracted. Every morning she would beckon Come and lie with me, love Joseph wanted to resist her Till one day she proved to eager Joseph cried in vain Please stop, I don't believe in free love Pity And that line, I don't believe in free love Comes right out of 1968 Yep This is Rice and Lloyd Webber Dealing with the the nascent sexual revolution yep. The notion of free love um, which really meant you didn't have to be afraid of pregnancy anymore. So yeah. people could couple up in whatever way they wanted to. Um, we're dealing with an England where homosexuality is coming out of the closet and getting to be more public and, and pronounced and all that sort of stuff. So you've got this complex mishmash really of a biblical story, a cultural milieu, the 60s, and the number is is kind of a 20s pastiche, right? It's a sort of Charleston, like I think kind of picking up on some of the sound qualities of, uh, of 1920s kind of, you know, uh, jazz, jazz speakeasy kind of culture, which is another sort of, right? Like sort of funny, but but subtly threatening kind of sense of sexuality, right? This is the, you know, the era in which, you know, women are cutting their skirts short and their hair shorter. And there's a sort of, you know, a, a, an, an echo or a, pre, a pretext, I suppose, of the 60s. Um, that's that's the musical quality that they're working with in that number. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting. So interesting having ripped it apart, I want to say I've seen it about five times in my life. And every time I see it, I, I'm left saying, gosh, darn, that show works like uh, it pleases an audience. I've never seen it without it getting a standing ovation, either professionally or in community theater. It's it's a story it's constructed. That's what I want to say. Mm -hmm. It's constructed. And I think because it kind of got workshopped as it grew, it, they didn't try to put on mm -hmm. the whole show. Like it began 15 minutes, then 30. And I think what they were doing was seeing what the audience responded to yeah. and adding in more and more things. Yep. So it's a crowd pleaser. It's got some great tunes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and there's no sense that it's trying to do more than it's capable of. I think yeah. that's one of the things that I respect Fair about enough. Joseph, right? It, I mean, it, it knows that at a certain level, it's children's entertainment and it's not, in some ways it's doing what, you know, it's sort of doing the Sesame Street thing where there's some, there's some sort of uh, jokes that are d deliberately designed to go over the kids' heads for, and better for the parents. 
you know, Pharaoh's a little right wing. That's a, that's not, you know, no kid's going to get that. So I mean, at that level, there's a, there's a, there's a level of kind of good children's entertainment sophistication to it, but nothing really beyond that. Joseph isn't trying to say anything particularly. It's yeah. just trying to give you, a, you know, trying to tell an old story that is beloved by many people, uh, give it a little bit of a kind of a fresh coat of paint. I mean, it's, it's doing what a cantata does, right? It's, it's at that level, it's almost liturgical. It's not trying to yeah. be a big in-depth piece about the human condition and you know the nature of god it's just it's just a fun it's a fun night out and and i there is i do have a certain degree of respect for a show that um has has limited a limited scope and he's doing actually what it's doing as you say pretty well it's, yeah it works it's kind of church cantata meets pantomime yeah yeah you know? well the the only we yeah the only more to explore. lots more to explore the, my, my only my one regret regret is as you say um, and maybe this is, you know, this is really more of a, of a, that's not quite a theological question. It's a, it's a church question, I suppose. You know, the function of children's Bibles, I guess, is what I'm, yeah. what I'm asking about, right? I grew up on them. I'm sure you did too. Um, yeah. How we, how, what's, what stories from the scripture that we choose to tell children, we choose to kind of make the children's stories of the Bible. Joseph is a classic. Noah's Ark is another one. Adam, you know, it's like we can name the Bible stories, the quote unquote Bible stories that we think are good David for and Goliath. David and Goliath. Uh, yeah, Moses to a certain degree, you know, as Christians, you know, it's all kind of leading up to Jesus. So we pick the Jesus-y stories. And, and there's a piece of me that wants to say, I think that, I don't know, I, I keep coming back to, um, I had a, a professor once who told me, never teach something you're going to have to unteach. And I think we do that with children all the time in church. We teach them stuff that we are going to have to unteach. And I think we do them no favors. And I think what we're seeing culturally is that at a certain point, they realize, oh, I was taught a load of lies. And to a certain degree, people kind of knew that they were doing that to me. And so this whole, this whole religious endeavor is bankrupt. And they're not wrong, right? The, the, the no. people who are streaming out of organized religion because maybe it didn't hurt them, but it certainly didn't, you know, it's like I got, I got told a bunch of, you know, sort of Santa Claus stories that are not actually even like, that's not even what these, the way these stories function in the Bible. I got sold kind of a, I got sold kind of a load of lies. Well, it's ultimately not fair to kids. Yeah. Because kids can actually deal with the darker themes, the complex themes. It's, it's uh, the adult hesitancy to introduce them. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and I have told this story before on this podcast, but the children's ministry person who read the slaughter of the innocents on Christmas Eve yeah. to the group of kids. And we got letters um, saying, you know, you spoiled Christmas dare you. because yeah. you added that part in. None of the kids complained. In fact, they were absolutely captivated. Right. I could see them of from course. where I was sitting. So I think similar with, similarly with the Joseph story, the parts that the kids are probably going to respond to mm -hmm. most are the parts that the children's Bible would sanitize. Would leave out. out. Yeah, it's Potiphar's wife. I mean, that's I was obsessed with that part of the story. And I didn't even know why I was obsessed with it. But, you know, like she's grabbing at his clothes and he's running away naked. Like, I'm a five-year-old gay boy. You better believe I'm obsessed with that moment, right? Like, I saw more skin in that moment. But no, I think I think it's, it's deeper than that. As you say, right? Like, children get the darker bits. Even if it's not, you know, like at, at a certain kind of a gut level, I think I think kids get a dark psychology. I think kids get the danger of dreams, the scariness of yeah. dreams. I mean, you talk about, I mean, the other sure. the other phenomenon of dreams is like they come at night. Nightmares are a piece of this. I mean, the world yeah. of children is very much the world of, of dreams and nightmares, the things that you're yeah. afraid of at night. 
power, how, how, how that psychology plays out in terms of your relationship with your brothers and your sisters and your father. I mean, like in some ways, I see why the Joseph story works so well with kids, but not because of the way that Lloyd Webber and Rice are sanitizing it. I think this story right. taps into some really elemental themes about growing up. And that's the, like, there's a piece of me, it's like, that's the musical I want to see. That's called Into the Woods, I think. <laughs> Maybe that's what that is. <laughs> so that's my that's my one regret, is, is that I think there is a really interesting, there's something really interesting to me about the Joseph material and the way that it functions. And Joseph and the Amazing Technical Dreamcoat, as you say, is a fun night at the, at the show. There's nothing wrong with it. But boy, I would love to. It could be so much it more. It could be so much more. Anyway. That's, okay. Maybe that's yeah. Council perfection. This is the be this is the beginning of our of our series. Yes, on indeed. Andrew Lloyd Webber. We'll and see how. Stay uh, tuned. I think how we go. Jesus yes. Christ Superstar stands up next. Oh boy. Okay. Oh boy. <laughs> buckle, okay. buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. Until next time. See you then. The Gospel of Musical Theater is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at gospelofmt. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.